Welcome to Pod Parks, a podcast for the park-minded, brought to you by World Urban Parks. In this podcast, we'll embark on a journey through the world of parks, from intimate community parks to sprawling urban national parks and everything in between. Join us as we explore the beauty and diversity of these urban oases. Meet the individuals and organizations working tirelessly to preserve and improve them. Our guide will be Alice Landin, Research Development Advisor for World Urban Parks. So come along as we rediscover the green spaces that make our cities livable. Hi, welcome to Pod Parks. I am thrilled to have the opportunity to share this space with you. We're going to have so much fun over the next couple of months exploring parks from all around the world. But before we get started, I want you to know, you know, the ground works, what to expect. So throughout the podcast, you're going to hear different formats. First, and what you'll hear today, we're going to explore the various elements that make up green public spaces around the world. We're also going to have the opportunity to hear from park professionals as they share their experiences and their insights through episode-long interviews. So that will be next episode. And... As a special little treat, we'll also be occasionally playing segments from conferences held at the annual World Urban Parks Congress. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast for all of this and more. Before we dive deep into the ins and outs of our favorite green area, we need to understand what is a park. And to do that, we're going to go back in time to the very beginning of public green. The parks we know today are extremely different from how they have existed throughout history. I would even argue that public parks are a rather modern feature of communities and societies. The very first semblance of a park goes back a few millennia to from approximately 4000 BCE but most notably around the 5th century BCE in ancient Persia. Persian kings and royal members created these lush, green, enclosed gardens, always, always enclosed, that served as sanctuaries and hunting grounds for themselves and their closest acquaintances. These gardens were beautiful. They would surround houses and palaces, and they were characterized by walkways next to trees and flowers, and fountains and channels. If you close your eyes, you can almost imagine the sounds and the smells and the feeling of peace that all of that nature brought. The Persians seek to create a paradise on earth, a refuge from the harsh climate conditions, and a place to be one with yourself and with nature. A similar version of these gardens were also created by other cultures, such as the Chinese, the Greeks, the Romans, and they were almost always royal or attached to wealth and class. And, very much like the Persians, all of these big gardens were used for meditation or as hunting grounds, and they often had a spiritual or contemplative meaning attached to them. Well, of course, people have um, always seen green space, vegetation, the natural environment as important for health for millennia. 
for centuries, all of medicine is based on use of plants for medicinal purposes originally and so on. So it's, it's not something new. This is Dr. Catherine Ward-Thompson, professor at the Edinburgh School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture. And in the Christian tradition, um, in monastic tradition, there would be herb gardens for health. So for, for thousands of years, uh, green space has been seen as important. Now, these first gardens had a very deep relation to power, as they were built by and for the wealthiest or more well-positioned members of society, such as emperors, governors, poets, scholars, priests, you know, the whole bunch. But it was them who had access to the physical, the mental, and the medicinal benefits of these gardens and parks. And because of their beauty, it's no surprise, of course, that many centuries later, these beautiful ancient parks became models for Renaissance villas that spread all across Europe from the 15th century onwards. Now, these new private parks, again, for hunting, for gardening, for entertaining, they became the norm among the European elite, who would spend their summers getting away from the city in their private little oases and entertaining. You've seen Bridgerton, right? But again, most of these were actually closed off to regular citizens. Uh, the royal parks, you know, date back to, you know, the, the 16th century and were, were great hunting grounds. Uh, King Henry VIII and uh, Charles I kind of galloping around what is now Hyde Park and Richmond Park and, and uh, the Regent's Park um, as hunting grounds. And those parks kind of eventually evolved into much more um, ornate, uh, designed parks at James's Park, for, for, for instance, designed by uh, John Nash. This is Paul Rabbits, author, park historian, and head of Parks and Open Spaces for Southern-on-Sea City Council. Paul has written over 20 books on the history of British parks, and he's currently writing a revised version of the book People's Parks that was originally published by Hazel Conway in 1991. So these parks kind of started to evolve, but they're very much private places you couldn't just wander in uh you know willy-nilly uh, as you would do today in a, in a public park it wasn't until the 19th century when cities began to grow at new and groundbreaking speeds that public parks really became a thing if we think about um the modern conception of an urban park, that idea really developed in the 19th century um, and it was partly a response to rapid urbanisation of many developed uh, cities. So rapid industrialization was creating all of these new jobs and bringing about thousands of new people into crowded, polluted cities. And with them, they began to bring in new concerns about, you know, the economy and society. So as cities grew, statistics and information about population became more and more important to government officials. And they began to conduct a lot of research regarding the condition of workers, their health, their education, wages, among other information. And the results showed, unsurprisingly, that they were not doing great. And a lot of the working class people who were attracted into towns for jobs there, were living in very cramped urban conditions, often with very little green space around their home, very little private green space. 
These results led to more concerns about the conditions of workers, which then led to an interest into something called rational recreation as a solution. As, as we've seen, the elite and governors and whatnot started thinking about rational recreation as yes. a, an answer for this moral rectification of the masses that needed to happen. Yeah, I mean, this, this, this is interesting, this whole concept of, of rational recreation, right, which many uh, um, historians of, of, of leisure have, have studied over a, n- a number of years. Uh, and it's interesting, actually, that a lot of these historians have actually looked at the impact of music and music halls and theatre and all that kind of stuff, but never really touched on parks. Um, but actually, parks were a major part of rational recreation. And, and for those who don't know what rational recreation is, it's almost like regulated, ordered, controlled regulation. In the 1830s, the ruling class really began to discuss the need to improve the urban experience beyond work. But you had the working classes um, living among pretty awful conditions. Uh, 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 and the fact that there was real concerns about, there was concerns about their moral and health and well-being, but there was also concerns that the working classes would riot um, and that's the last thing that they wanted. There was also concerns that actually, uh, you know, the health of, of the working classes was pretty poor. Um, the only places that they could go to for any kind of leisure at the time was the pub. Many intellectuals, such as the Select Committee on Public Walks, advocated that creating open public spaces where people could walk and exercise and, you know, stretch their limbs a little bit would lead to better health and comfort of the working class, which, of course, would lead to more productivity and more wealth for these elites. These committees pointed out, rightly so, that ordinary citizens had been completely left out of the open spaces and lush fields and grassy lawns that had been a part of wealthy society for centuries. While rich aristocrats could get away to their villas and their summer houses, most city dwellers only had their homes, work, and bars and pubs to spend time in. So bringing in the wild experience of the countryside into the city was seen not only as a solution to improve health, community, and happiness, but also to keep people out of drinking dens in what they called strict moral guidelines. A lot of intellectuals believed that if they were not entertained in the outdoors, poor citizens would run, quote, morally aground and become a threat to public security. A group in London called the Select Committee on the Health of Towns even went as far as to state that change was needed, quote, not less for the welfare of the poor than the safety of property and the security of the rich. Huh. Similar articles and statements continue to emerge, augmenting that parks would lead to a better use of leisure time and would replace drinking and other unworthy pleasures. So this cocktail of reasons and discussions finally led to the decision to open some private and some royal parks to the public. And it also prompted the creation of completely new green public spaces. But these spaces weren't just open, you know, their gates weren't just flung wide open waiting for people to rush in and use them. This opening was followed by strict moral guidelines that promoted 
order and civility. So in a way, parks became the place to learn and practice how to properly use a public space. There were real, real challenges at the time for these kind of le le leisured, um, you know, the, the leisured classes. And I can, I can quote you one, uh, which is really good, is the Times. The Times uh, in 1841. Uh, talking about opening up, they were actually discussing at the time about looking at opening up Regent's Park uh, to the public, bearing in mind it's a royal park. Uh, and this appeared in the Times, and it makes me laugh every time I read it. Um, redemption of the working class through recreation. After all, why should the lower orders, lower orders, not enjoy the liberty of taking a walk in the more plebeian portions of the park, provided they have a decent coat on? Now, as Paul says, these parks were created to promote physical and moral health, and their designs absolutely reflected this. So you had long walkways to walk and lawns for practicing sport. You had promenades and gazebos to watch people and be seen. Parks played a role in courtships and in families and just all around social life. They helped guide men and women as to how they should behave in public and with each other. Um, and so there was quite strict rules when you looked at the bylaws of, of, of many of these parks and open spaces about what was deemed appropriate. So, so, for instance, like drinking was, you know, hugely frowned upon. Uh, Sabbatarians, for instance, were really, really upset about the fact that music was played on, on a Sunday. Uh, again, this division between, um, between male and female uh, was, was challenging in some areas. So, for instance, um, many gymnasiums at the time, which we would now call today play areas, um, you had female-only ones and male-only ones. I asked Paul if these efforts to rectify the masses were considered successful at the time, and to my surprise, he said they did. But parks also brought about new antisocial or even criminal behavior, such as vandalism, drinking, sexual crimes. So, you know, it wasn't the fairy tale garden that they hoped to create. But I think we can pretty confidently say that overall, parks in combination with better sanitation and better working conditions and advances in medicine and manufacturing and all of these things that the Industrial Revolution brought about did create many benefits for the communities that they served. Uh, nonetheless, it was also an enlightened approach to understanding the benefits of access to green space. So we see certainly in Europe, in many cities in the 19th century, public parks were developed. They were sometimes formerly royal parks or private um, estates. Uh, sometimes they were newly developed as parks, but the idea was that they should be available for all citizens. Um, and even in the 19th century, the language that was used, for example, in the British Parliament to talk about the benefits of parks sounds remarkably modern. It talks about adding healthy years to the life of the working population about the importance of a working man being able to get away from the polluted and crowded environment of their living space into a place with fresh air where they can contemplate nature. And actually, that is still very much the case uh, today, sadly for many people who live in cramped urban conditions in many parts of the world. Now, one of the first parks that were designed as a public park was Birkenhead Park in England. 
This park was publicly funded and designed by landscape architect Joseph Paxton, and it quickly gained the name of the People's Garden. Now, I was, I was in Birkenhead last, only last week, uh, and yeah, I, I've, I've been a few times, but it is a magical, magical place. Uh, and, you know, I love it. I'm inspired and in awe of the guy every time I, I walk around Birkenhead Park because he knew exactly what he was doing. Birkenhead Park opened in 1847 to a huge fanfare. It was the first British park to use public funds to create a municipal park, and it became the model for parks around the world because its design was exquisite. Paxton's design was, was, was innovative. The way he designed, designed the park and the layout of the park, horticulture was really a strong part of it. The fact that you could, you could never see the whole park in one. Uh, you had vistas opened up, you had those kind of perimeter paths that took you round the park uh, and there was elements that you suddenly came upon. Um, he took into account promenading, he took into account the kind of horticulture. I highly recommend that you at least take a look at the Google Photos of Birkenhead Park then, or, you know, Birkenhead Park today. It is breathtaking. It reminds me of the scenery that surrounded fairy tales that I grew up with. Seeing these views, you know, taking them all in, it really feels like you're stepping into a land with no work and no worries and nothing but green. That's what you see when you go to a Paxton Park. Uh, and you didn't do many, very few parks in fact. Um, but the great thing about Paxton was those who worked for him, um, the protégés who worked for Paxton. And when you look at who they were, um, that was Milner, Edward Milner, John Gibson and Edward Kemp. Inspired by Paxton's teachings, these protégés, among many other architects and designers, accelerated the rise of these beautiful, iconic public parks in metropolitan areas around the world. And with them, they created this new integral part of communities specifically designed for people to meet, to stroll, or to just exist. But creating new parks came at a price. On one hand, there was a growing demand for public spaces, especially as new parks were proving to be very successful, not only in promoting the health of citizens, but also in the promotion of these moral and social values about gender and class, which were also very much part of their intent. But at the same time, the land that could be used for parks, the land that was available, was being sold off super quickly and very expensively to create new factories and new homes and bring more growth into the city as capitalism was designed to do. So what did we do? How did we solve this dilemma? Well, in some cases, the answer was to erase settlements from history altogether. The success of Birkenhead Park was praised around the world, with urban leaders globally just wanting to reproduce their parks in their own cities. And one of these imitators was none other than New York City. Its philanthropists, its leaders, and just basically all of its elite were very discontent with how dirty and how crowded the city had gotten. And they saw large parks as a way to put New York City back on the map. 
So in 1853, state officials approved funds to purchase over 700 acres of land to create a new large public park, and they held a design competition for its creation. They made a very big deal out of it, and the winning plan was submitted by Frederick Law Olmsted, who was inspired by Birkenhead Park and wanted to create his own big democratic space where people of all backgrounds could meet and reconnect with themselves and with nature. So his design reflected this. It was full of nature, with woodlands and large landscapes. It harbored over two hundred and seventy thousand trees and shrubs. The plans were visionary, except for one detail: the area that the government had envisioned for the park was already inhabited. During the first half of the 19th century, in what is now basically smack in the middle of Central Park, there was a settlement called Seneca Village, a community of around 300 people, predominantly Black residents, who had bought land to create a safe haven from racist downtown Manhattan. By the 1850s, Seneca Village was a thriving middle-class neighborhood, and it had churches and it had a school, and by owning property. Its black residents, many of whom were previously enslaved, were finally allowed to vote. So once the plans for Central Park were drawn up, the entire community was displaced. Their land was bought by the government below its value. The school and the churches were destroyed, and the village's history was completely erased from the image of Central Park. And the image of New York City as a whole. It wasn't until the 1990s that researchers and archaeologists began to uncover it and bring this history to light. The history of so many parks is actually based on a, some kind of violence. You know, people were displaced to build these parks. Often in the United States, very often. People were displaced to build these parks. You know, Native Americans were displaced from Yosemite when that became a park.、Uh, African Americans were displaced from the land where Central Park was built in New York. You're listening to Michael Boland, head of the Presidio Trust, and he's speaking from his own experience at Presidio Park, which used to be a military quartel. This history、uh, of violence. Becomes an opportunity to build a very deep bridge, but you, that has to happen via reconciliation, through deep engagement with those communities, through a kind of truth-telling about the history.、Um, and so,、uh, again, I feel like both the transformation of a place like the Presidio into a national park, where we're healing the environment, where we're restoring and expanding healthy natural ecosystems that everyone can enjoy, but where we're also Breaking down this history of violence and genocide, but even also this history of exclusion,、yeah. so that it's a place that everyone feels welcome. That that those two things create a kind of hopefulness. So from this moment onwards, when we analyze and we evaluate and we appreciate green public spaces, I think we have to recognize the following: parks are not neutral; they are shaped by and they shape us. Yes, they're a very important part of their lives of the communities that they inhabit, but from their very early history, parks have been attached to struggles of power, and of control of places of nature, and especially of people. And their meaning and their role in our lives and in the lives of our community can and does change through time.
So now it is up to us to determine what roles we want parks to play in our present and what roles we want them to play in our future. This marks the end of our very first episode of Pod Parks. Keep up with our upcoming episodes to discover more about how the role of parks has changed in the 20th and the 21st century. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. And please leave us a review to help us reach a lot more park enthusiasts like yourself. If you want to get involved and get connected with park professionals from around the world, visit worldurbanparks.org. That is worldurbanparks.org. If you're already connected, remember that this is only one of the many resources available to you in the member platform. You can find communities, a digital library, and a director of park professionals from all over. You can even find me. And if you're not a member, this is my official invitation to become a part of this global community. Before we wrap up, I would love to know, do you know the history of an iconic park in your city? Now's the time to go find out. Thank you for listening to Pod Parks by World Urban Parks. Pod Parks is written and hosted by Alice Landin, produced by Vitoria Martin and Luis Roman, sound engineering by Vladimir Yanez. Don't forget to visit worldurbanparks.org and explore the resources our online community has for you. Get out, explore, connect. <laughs>